However you want to make a splash this year, Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds can help every step of the way. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes crafted with premium supernatural weather-repellent materials. The high-top uppers are moisture-wicking merino wool with puddle guard technology, and the supernatural rubber treads ensure all-weather traction, so you can jump into anything, rain or shine. Make a splash with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hi there, I'm Rain Wilson. And I'm Reza Aslan. And Rain, I think you're beautiful. Well, I guess I think you're beautiful too, Reza. Thank you. That didn't sound nearly as certain. Well, I'm just starting to wrap my head around that. What do you find beautiful about me? Let's start there. I find your moral and artistic light beautiful. Not my beard? Mm-mm. Hello, Metaphysical Milkshake listeners. Here we are, Rain and Reza. And Reza, listen, we're both artists. We're both creators. We're both storytellers, among other things. You also happen to be an academic and an author. (laughs) But you could argue that we've lived our lives in pursuit of some kind of beauty. Yeah, physical beauty, artistic beauty, moral beauty. Yeah, but what does that mean exactly? I guess it depends on how you define what is beautiful? Yeah, in, in preparation for this podcast on beauty today, I I was very flummoxed by it. I, I, I haven't, you know, truth be told, I haven't done a bunch of studying about Aristotle on beauty and Socrates on beauty and Plato. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit at a loss, but there seems to be a lot of connective tissue between a lot of different big key concepts and beauty. Yeah, I've done most of my studies have been on L'Oreal and beauty. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not Revlon. It's a lot of yeah. I've done some. I've done. No, I did this, an undergraduate in Revlon. But this Revlon. is a good point because a lot of people hear the word beauty and they think beauty industry instantly. You know, they instantly. think makeup right. and they think models and Instagram models. And, and then I guess people like you and me are supposed to poo-poo that and say, "Ha, that's right. that's external beauty. That's not real beauty." But it, this is this is a this is a kind of a, a moral burden for me. So I'm going to admit something. Uh, uh, a few years ago, my wife and I were in the middle of a conversation, and she'd mentioned something about the fact that you know most of my closest friends are physically attractive, men hmm. and women, and it suddenly made me go into this kind of deep dive into my psyche. And then I had to kind of admit that, yeah, that's true. That wow. uh, the the friends that I have in my life that I am closest to also happen to be, maybe it's on purpose, maybe it's accident, causation, correlation, who knows. I also happen to be attracted to them. Whereas the flip side of that is I've had friends that I've known for a long time, yeah. that I spend a lot of time with, mm-hmm. uh, that I've had, you know, emotional experiences with. But if I'm being honest, I'm not really attracted to them physically. And so they'll never sort of rise to the upper echelon of my closest friends. Wow. I know it's a, it's 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 a, a, a kind of an awful thing to admit. But, but it's got true. Some, I've got some... A couple of big mammoth whopper questions for you around that. That's quite a thing to admit and brave to admit. Number one, where do I fit into this? <laughs> You're the very top. Okay, that's so not true. But number two, are you just admitting your own superficiality? I, I don't know. Well, maybe there's some. Maybe there is a correlation. Is there something that if if you have a friend that yeah. you've been through hell and back with, and you're close and you work together, but they're physically not attractive, or they don't smell right, or or something like that? Like, does that truly keep them from being kind of more intimate with you? Well, I don't know if there's like a biological or psychological reasoning behind it. All I can say is, yeah. Can I can I uh, be an armchair psychologist for a oh, minute? Oh boy, here we go. You're an immigrant kid. Mm-hmm. You yes. moved to 
Oklahoma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you're a pretty good looking guy. I think oh, a lot of people you. don't know that. Like you see Reza, it's like, oh, he's, he's actually a handsome, handsome dude. And you're trying to fit in. Yeah. And there's some kind of like sociological, psychological impulse to fit in better by hanging out with the better looking kids. Better looking kids are more popular. But for you, this is really life and death. It's not just mm. like, oh, I want to be approved of by my junior high school friends. Like, this is fitting in for you. The stakes are way, way high. You know, you've got a, a Farsi family or in, you know, middle of America. So, is this, does this come from some kind of like impulse of yours, some adolescent impulse to to find your group because the stakes are so high? Well, these are all really complicated questions. I mean, beauty, is is there a connection between, uh, you know, the, the, the attractedness that you feel towards someone, you know, in a platonic sense yeah. and their beauty? Is there even an objective beauty or is all beauty subjective? Is it, is there moral beauty and physical beauty? These I mean, these are these are the kinds of questions that, like, you know, the, the whole the, the your entire freshman experience in college. I think I just summed up in those five questions. Yeah, I mean, is love beauty? Is beauty love? What's the connection? You talked about moral beauty. Can you be beautiful on the inside? Our culture doesn't really respect that so much. Not it's, really. It's about external beauty wish, far more I than. I wish internal. one of us was related to somebody who could answer some of these questions oh, for damn us. Damn it! What are we gonna do? Wait is a your minute. wife is your wife free? No, <laughs> she's not. Wait a minute. Hold on. You know who just landed in Los Angeles? My uncle from Lewiston, Idaho, from Lewis Clark University, Dr. Rhett Diesner. Uncle Rhett. Um, he's a professor of psychology, and he's the author of the upcoming book. It's more of an academic book, but it's called Understanding the Beauty Appreciation Trait, Empirical Research on Seeking Beauty in All Things. He also did a TEDx talk in 2013 about beauty, which encapsulates a lot of his philosophy. And uh, he's a brilliant psychologist and psychological thinker. Uh, You know, I've been super close to him since I was a teenager. Um, We're very, very good friends. And I was really excited to have him be part of this podcast. And maybe he'll share some embarrassing childhood stories. Oh, wow. Let's listen to Uncle Brett. After my master's degree, I spent a little time meditating on what did the world really need and what did I have to offer and what was really important. And I thought, well, morality is really important. I mean, the big decisions. In fact, the question I'm even asking myself at that time was, what should I do? And should's a moral question. So I thought, well, who's the greatest uh, psychologist studying morality? And it was Kohlberg at Harvard. So I applied and got to go work with him. And how do you make that shift from... Uh, more moral studying morality of psychology or psychology and morality and education over to beauty. Well, uh, beauty and morality are uh, very closely linked. In fact, my favorite existential psychologist, Rollo May, says that uh, Plato, you know, held beauty up as a standard for both truth and the good to meet because uh, it was the harmony of beauty that would let you know whether you had truth value or moral value. And, uh, and of course, Aristotle very uh, clearly said that, you know, beauty is all about one's uh, morals and values, uh, that, you know, it's internal beauty. Obviously, Aristotle was very ugly. <laughs> That's why been. he said that. Real dog. Real dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he would walk down the street and they'd be like, Arr! They'd be like, wow, that guy's beautiful on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> he better. So th- help me to understand this because. I don't get this at all. How can someone be beautiful on the inside? And is that just something we say? Is that just yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. really? Yeah. Just- yeah. Well, you know, that, that takes me back. My master's degree program actually was in a, uh, in a behavioral program and they made fun of anything on the inside, right? <laughs> I mean, emotions, ha ha, oh, yeah. cognition, the yeah. black box. Oh, silly psychologists thinking they're studying something they can't even measure. I think going back to Aristotle, as you mentioned, Reza, uh, he emphasizes that all of our character strengths, everything from our sense of justice to uh, courage to love to kindness, uh, the tell us of those, their goal, their end is, is always beauty. 
And um, wait, explain that. I, I yeah. still don't get that. How do you? Okay. How is the goal of kindness beauty? Yeah. Is it that? Is it that who you are? Who you are on the inside comes out on the outside, or is it just the outside doesn't matter? It's all that you said. Telos. Is it all just uh, you know an internal uh, uh, function? Well, uh, you know, internal and external are very useful ways of categorizing the world, but, you know, could well be a false dichotomy. I mean, it's, uh, it's like faith and deeds, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> if you got mm-hmm. faith, you do the deeds. If you do the deeds, you probably got the faith. They're you know, fairly well linked. And uh, I think that's the same way with uh, our insides, whatever they are, our heart, our soul, our mind, uh, and our behavior, consciousness, absolutely. Uh, these two just reveal each other um, bi-directionally. Um, but, you know, us, us mortal humans, I mean, we're, we're animals that have sensory systems and we see people behave and then we make inferences about their insides. As a behaviorist, we're right about that. It's pretty hard to measure somebody's emotions on the inside. And am I am I right in saying that there's been a lot of research done lately saying uh, this notion that um, if you are someone who is primed to see beauty in the world, in nature, in other people, in art, um, that there is a correlation between that desire for for beauty to to experience beauty and uh, the desire. Uh, to be a better person. Uh, definitely on topic, but maybe slightly tangential to that complex question uh, is the work of Jonathan Haidt, who's at uh, NYU now. And, uh, you know, I was, you always wonder what it'd be like, like be a biologist and discover a new animal, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, he discovered a new emotion, which really isn't true. He didn't discover it. He just named it and did the first empirical work on it about the year 2000. And that's the emotion of elevation. Mm. And that's a moral emotion, and it's the emotional experience you have when you're observing moral beauty in action. So like you're saying, when you Mm. see someone out there, do something loving, do something fair, stand up with courage, and it moves you, that moving you is what he named elevation. And the eliciting condition is always moral beauty. I mean, what, what is it that happens when you confront that kind of moral beauty like yeah. biologically, what's happening yeah. to you that then yeah. makes you yeah. uh, feel this sense of, of elevation? You know, that's a, that's a direction that uh, neuroscientists need to move on this. But there has been uh, at least one study, Jonathan Haidt and his colleague, uh, I think, I can't remember, sure, maybe Silvers, um, studied uh, lactating moms and put them under certain moral beauty, non-moral beauty conditions, and were able to establish that oxytocin increased during the moral beauty experience. So when you're feeling elevation, you also have elevated oxytocin, which so is... oxytocin is like the love yes. pheromone, like connection, yes. bonding. Yeah. Yes, those you are know. all the words for it. This actually is really fascinating because it's kind of bringing me around to what I would say is uh, the biggest question about beauty, <sighs> which is, is it objective or subjective? Right? Sure. I, mean, am I, wrong? I, I would think that that's kind of like the first question that you, you ask when you're yeah, in your would, freshman morals class. I right? would go with that and I would say is, yeah, is can beauty be qualified as objective or is it all beauty in the eye of the beholder, as they yeah, say? Right. And, and what is beauty? I mean, what is it? Is, I always think of beauty as aesthetics, but all of a sudden we started this conversation and it's all about moral behavior. Mm-hmm. So and biology, which makes mm-hmm. me think, is it maybe objective? Like if honest, if I look at something that's beautiful, yeah. And in looking at it, suddenly I'm full of oxytocin. Yeah. Uh, but that, I mean, doesn't, so there's a biological Isn't there component. like an objective beauty then? No? So take, t- talk us from the very right, beginning. here we go. Maybe we should ask the, oh, right. the, the actual we professor. We got an expert here. <laughs> Quickly write down those eight questions you guys just asked. But uh, yeah, they're pretty exciting questions. Uh, I'm sympathetic when people say uh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder because it's really obvious you find some things beautiful I don't and you find some things not beautiful that I do. I just looked at Rain and then Reza. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> right? That's so, okay. it, you know, it's easy to think, oh, okay, so it's just subjective. Um, but what it turns out, uh, most philosophers um, think that it's uh, simultaneously subjective and objective. So beauty in the That's eye. That's exactly what I would expect a moral philosopher to say. <laughs> Cop out. Um, no, the no, answer is no. it's both. Non-dichotomous <laughs> thinking, please. And 
uh, beauty in the eye of the beholder is, is very true in the sense that where does the beauty experience take place? Well, you know, it's taking place in your brain if you're a materialist. It's taking place in your soul if you're non-materialist. It's maybe taking place in both. So it's easy to think, oh, that's happening in me. But then you have to think, well, something came at me. I don't live in a void. What was that? And that's the, the objective properties yeah. of the beauty experience. And there's a long history of that. I mean, I, I totally idolized Socrates, and he was a real objectivist when it came to beauty, for instance. And even the crazy, wild uh, Crispin Sartwell, who has the entry on beauty in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, uh, he, he's an objectivist as well. Um, what does that mean, objectivists? It, it means there's, there's real beauty out there. It doesn't matter if you think it's beautiful. Right. It doesn't matter a, if I think it's beautiful. Sun, it's beautiful. A sunset on a mountain range it's is going to be beautiful, beautiful yeah. to yeah. every yeah. 7 billion yeah. people on the planet. There's yeah. not even going to be a tribe. Well, there are, there'll be an asshole yeah. who's like, eh. But no, everybody, <laughs> yes, I, I'm with Rain on this. Yeah. Like, you know, a beautiful uh, flower uh, is just beautiful. You yeah. know, yep. I mean, so there are yeah. things that are objective, but those beautiful. are nature things. Can you can everyone think that the Acropolis is beautiful or the Mona Lisa is beautiful? We're going to leave this as a potentially open question. Hey, milkshakers, if you're thinking about breaking some bad habits this year, start with this one overpaying for your prescriptions. That sucks. Mm-hmm. To do that, get in the good habit of always checking good RX to help find the best price for your prescription medications. Now, I used to go to just one pharmacy, not knowing that, you know what? Prescription prices can vary between pharmacies by as much as a hundred bucks. That, is Turns that true? A hundred bucks? Yeah, that's true. A hundred bucks. And you, you might be overpaying. So yeah. I always use GoodRx to instantly find discounts and compare prices at all the pharmacies in my neighborhood. So even if you're like me and have insurance, uh, you should still check GoodRx because it can often beat your copay. You can use their site or the GoodRx app, which you can download for free. GoodRx is free, it's easy to use, and you can instantly save up to 80%. That's a big percent, Reza. Plus, here's another thing about GoodRx. It's accepted at over 70,000 pharmacies nationwide. We're talking CVS, Kroger, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Vons, Walmart, pretty much all of them. (laughs) Uh, And what's great about GoodRx, I mean, at least for me, it's that, you know, I'm getting older, so I'm getting more and more prescriptions. And, you know, it starts to like add up after a while. And so being able to find a good discount price for my prescriptions makes GoodRx totally worth it. So for simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to GoodRx.com slash milkshake. That's GoodRx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used instead of insurance. In 2021, GoodRx users saved an average of 79% on retail prescription prices. OneSkin is a longevity company led by a team of five PhDs developing solutions to prevent, slow down, and reverse aging. OneSkin harnesses the science of aging to develop products that extend the length of time that skin is healthy and youthful. Its topical supplement is a daily moisturizer powered by their proprietary peptide OSO1, the first peptide scientifically proven to reduce the biological age of skin. Here's the thing about OneSkin is that it's not it's not a skincare company. It's a longevity company, right? That's how they talk about themselves. It's it's fundamentally different from most of the skincare companies because, you know, they're founded and led by longevity scientists, not marketing experts. And for OneSkin, it's all about the science. Its founding team of PhD-level aging experts spent five years in the lab researching skin and aging to discover this OS01 and develop their topical supplement. And I'm talking about real science here, people. OneSkin has four patents, two scientific papers, two clinical studies, and one secret algorithm. Wait, a skincare with an algorithm? Uh, They they don't mess around, Rain. Sign me up. No, seriously, they send uh, samples of this stuff, and I have my OneSkin on the counter of my bathroom, and... You know, I have this other moisturizer from that's super expensive from my dermatologist, and I've totally put that aside. The one skin is way better. It just feels better. Inter- instantly hydrates my skin and face. And now I, I mean, look- You look fantastic. 
I look all of 52. It's great stuff. So visit oneskin.co slash milkshake and use the code milkshake for 15% off your first purchase. The code applies to one-time purchases and the first order of subscription purchases. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O slash milkshake. Use the code milkshake for 15% off your first purchase. One skin. The great philosopher at Princeton, Nehemiah, he, he's down with Plato with the objectivist stuff. So I'm just going with, you know, the really lame mm-hmm. authoritarian approach to science. Hey, these guys are a lot smarter than me. They think is objectivist. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but as to proving it, uh, yeah, I don't know how we'd go about that. Here's, here's my absolutely uh, non-professional uh, view of this is that attraction is subjective, mm-hmm. but beauty is objective. Mm. And I may be making I may be making this up, but was mm. I, I feel like a, a, a while ago there was some experiment that was done. Hopefully you can help me out here, Uncle Rhett, um, where um they showed people uh, a, a bunch of faces. Um and it was it was precisely this attempt to say, you know, can there be sort of an a, a objective beauty when it comes to people? And then they had the participants I think rank, you know, how beautiful they were. But the faces were uh, deliberately designed to be either symmetrical or asymmetrical mm-hmm. in some way. And I think what they f- discovered was that symmetry is, there's a correlation between symmetry, when and, it comes to a face beauty. at least, yeah. and beauty. Am I making that one up too? No, that's, Some, I think sometimes that's I just and say And I think things. that was across all cultures. Yeah. That was, yeah. And then there's uh, studies that have found that if you think that someone is beautiful, you're also likely to assume they're smart, ambitious, and interesting mm-hmm. And, and moral. Mm-hmm. And you'll yeah. think that they're moral. Well, let me let me reply to the subtext of what you were really asking, mm-hmm. which is evolution and beauty. So uh, have we evolved to notice beauty? Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, what was what's adaptive about noticing yeah, beauty? Yeah, to what purpose? Good idea. And the, the big consensus is in terms of nature is the stuff that helped us survive. So it turns out, and we have a bunch of objective evidence about this from uh, research studies, is we find a vista beautiful. And why is a vista beautiful? Because you're up on a vista, you can see your enemies, you can see where the food sources are, you got all sorts of good issues going on there for you. Uh, what do we like? We like green stuff. Why green stuff indicates water, it creates animals, it creates fruits and vegetables that mm-hmm. we can eat. We like also to have a river scene in there or a lake. Obviously, again, we need water to survive. So all of these things that uh, we yeah, tend but, to find. But, but can't you say, that's so boring. Can't you just say <laughs> that there's more stuff? You know, if you're in a in a nook or a hollow or a chasm and you're looking in front of you, you're seeing a bunch of rocks and some moss, right? Yeah. You're on a vista. You're seeing there's a panoply of there's more color, there's more, there's mountain ranges, there's trees, like yeah. there's there's something to the diversity of what you're seeing too, yeah. right? And what about, yeah. and like, I get what you mean with yeah. the sort of the greenness, but, you know, we don't eat foliage, do we? We don't eat flowers. But it's uh, indicative of where food might be, I guess. I guess, maybe, I don't know. Isn't there something to just, a vista is also beautiful because there's more things to see in more interesting ways. Well, uh, just there's an aesthetic to it. It's not simply... Uh, behaviorist evolutionary psychology preservations of the species. Well, this this is the way we think for the last 75,000 years when the Cultural Revolution started, right? And there's a lot of critics of the evolutionary approach to beauty because those things may have applied and they may still be roots and they may still be influencing us. But once culture came into play, whoa, powerfully changed everything, especially our concepts of beauty. Why is that? Because... Is it because of um, groupthink? Because one thing that I've one one of the fascinating studies that uh, Amy sent us about beauty uh, indicates that it, it, ideas of what is beautiful mm-hmm. could actually spread like a, a virus mm-hmm. would spread. Mm-hmm. That if mm-hmm. that if you have someone who finds something beautiful, whether you did before or not, you are more likely to then find it beautiful yourself. And is that? I mean, is is that just sort of group groupthink, or is there is there something biological happening, you know, in you in you finding something beautiful, and then me suddenly finding it beautiful as well? 
Um, and then that kind of concept of beauty spreading, and then we have beauty within culture, and then we as a community decide, oh, tall, thin women are beautiful. But then another culture says, no, actually large, big-boned women are beautiful. And it's just sort of a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's come into a play a lot. And, uh, you know, you say uh, there is a biological component to it. Um, in fact, one of the papers I wrote for Journal of Eco-Psychology mentions me following my dad around. He was a nature lover. And I call it his gaze and his gait, right? What he's gazing at, he's not a man of many words. He didn't use the word beautiful in front of me. But when he's gazing intently at something, I mean, what's a four-year-old or eight-year-old going to do? They're going to look where they're gazing. Mm-hmm. And you're going to know that's important. And you're going to model it on your mirror neurons. Something important is happening right there. He's focused. Now he changes directions and walks somewhere else. That's his gait. I'm following. And so, yes, you know, we we are not just herd creatures. We're probably hive creatures. I mean, we are really designed to influence each other. And we do. Going back to this notion of... Uh, the interrelationship between uh, physical beauty, external beauty, mm-hmm. and uh, internal beauty. Mm-hmm. We had talked about the fact that people who are more beautiful are immediately assumed to be smarter, more moral. Mm-hmm. And then we've also talked about the fact that uh, the sort of morality on the inside can express itself, um, certainly in the eye of the beholder, as beauty mm-hmm. on the outside. But then doesn't that just become an argument for sort of the beauty industry? Therefore, in other words, therefore, shouldn't we all try to be beautiful? Shouldn't I use, you know, anti-wrinkle medicine? Get Botox injections. Yeah, and and bronzing. You know, it's not actually, it's not, uh, it's not superficial anymore. Like I actually, if there's a link between, you know, my morality and certainly the way that people look at me then shouldn't I try to be physically beautiful? You know, when you have a a multi-billion dollar business in a capitalist world, they have a lot of powerful ways to train us to think what is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, the contagion is huge because that's the way we humans are. You know, it reminds me of the time when I was working in an education division and we were thinking a couple of our students smelled bad and, you know, maybe they shouldn't be teachers because they're going to offend their students and the parents. And one of the kinesiology professors, what I used to call a PE teacher, one of the kinesiology <laughs> professors says, "What well, what's wrong with smelling like a human? And that was a life changer for me. I started thinking about that. Really? We've been all trained to think that human sweat is bad and we need to clog it up and disguise it. And really? Mm. So I don't think it would be that hard for us to start thinking of beauty as natural, right? I mean, we could do the same meme join thing and Mm -hmm. think, hey, natural is cool. Do we really need these body products? Uh, Because, you know, they're stressful on the water systems and... Spoken like a true hippie. Yeah. Yeah. Busted. Well, okay. So um, how can we then divorce our uh, sort of the, the moral and ethical spiritual beauty that we've been talking about, the internal beauty, mm-hmm. um, from our day-to-day uh, desire to be physically pretty? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we've already said that they, mm-hmm. they're linked with each mm-hmm. other. Maybe mm-hmm. we don't want them to be linked because mm-hmm. of all the reasons that you said. Mm-hmm. So how, how mm-hmm. do we de-link those mm-hmm. two things? Or can we? Well, uh, I think one avenue for that is uh, there are a couple of philosophers, two living philosophers, uh, Nehemiah at Princeton and that uh, Crispin Sartwell who wrote the beauty uh, section for Stanford University philosophy book. Uh, they both say, you know, beauty's everywhere and in everything. And so it becomes uh, a moral and intellectual challenge for us to find it. And I think we can find that in people's faces. I think if we look at anybody's face, we can find ways to construe it as beautiful. Um, and in, and that is, takes some creativity. Mine is a challenge but it's possible. Exactly. Keep going. I'm working on it. <laughs> so you know, it's about the cultivation 
of seeing beauty in everything. Yeah. And is that something you can get better at, like going to the gym and yeah. lifting weights? Yeah. Can you make question. that muscle yeah. uh, stronger? Yeah, your yeah. beauty muscle. Yeah. How? Yeah. Well, uh, it, it's not easy. Um, if we if we look at the most famous personality theory, it's the one on the five-factor model. It's developed by mathematical psychologists. And it says, basically, our personalities have to do with introversion, extroversion, conscientiousness, neuroticness, agreeableness, and openness. And you look at those big five, 10,000 published studies on them, and beauty, appreciation of beauty, fits into the one on openness. This is just statistically true. It might be psychologically true, but definitely statistically true. And so uh, we can, uh, as we develop our openness, and this is especially true of artistic beauty, the more open we become, the more we recognize artistic beauty. And when we really analyze artistic beauty, we're talking about design beauty. Anything that has been designed can be appreciated for its beauty or the lack thereof. <laughs> but we can still look for it. And every designer can be conscious of beauty. Designing this microphone, right? Designing our clothes, designing the building, everything design has the potential to be beautiful. And we can look for those beautiful elements. But research on the big five show that if we purposely want to change personality, it's hard, it's not easy. And openness is the hardest one to change. But there is evidence that it can be changed. Now, in my own research, what I've shown is probably the most effective way that somebody's tried so far. Could be lots more effective ways we haven't figured out yet, but it's doing a pretty simple, simple thing called journaling or, di or a diary. So like for my students taking my psych of beauty class, once a week, they need to write down in their diary something they found that was beautiful, that was designed, something beautiful in nature, something morally beautiful they saw someone do, and a beautiful idea. Mm, that's amazing. That's cool. What a cool yeah. assignment. I want to do that in my real life. Yeah. Have you ever spent hours Googling how to care for your pet? Yes. Everything from why is my cat sneezing so much or what to do when your dog eats a stick of butter. One time, this is a true story, a dog of ours ate a box of condoms. <laughs> yeah. My dog enjoys his own poop. Oh, yeah. We've got one like that. Yeah. So skip crowdsourcing recommendations from forums, social media, or trial and error and get answers immediately with Fuzzy. You see, Fuzzy is a telehealth service for pet parents. It offers 24-7 access to personalized pet care from veterinary professionals. From everyday questions to middle-of-the-night emergencies, Fuzzy has the answers pet parents need. Through live chat and virtual vet consultations available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Fuzzy can answer your pet questions big and small, urgent and every day. Fuzzy can also recommend the exact right products for your pet, all of which are handpicked by their established team of veterinary professionals and available at discounts exclusive to Fuzzy members. From getting your pet's diet just right to meeting their middle-of-the-night needs to finally figuring out what makes their breath smell that way. Poop. It's the poop. It's always the poop. Nothing is too big or too small for a quick fuzzy call. <laughs> no, but seriously, like this, this eating poop thing is a problem, and I... I consulted Fuzzy. I've got a Fuzzy account and uh, I got some really good advice. Right now, Fuzzy is offering our listeners a free seven-day trial membership. Go to yourfuzzy.com slash meta today to sign up. That's a free day, seven-day trial at y-o-u-r-f-u-z-z-y, yourfuzzy.com slash meta, M-E-T-A. And for a limited time, Fuzzy is also offering a special discount of 20 bucks off any of your pet's product needs. That's pet meds, supplements, food, whatever. All you have to do is use the promo code META, M-E-T-A. That's yourfuzzy.com slash META for your free trial of Fuzzy with access to 24-7 personalized pet care and vet-recommended products, including products that will get your dog to stop eating his own poop. NordVPN is a secure way of preventing your personal information from being spread around the web when using Wi-Fi. 
The line of protection is wonderful. It prevents spam, viruses, and other unwanted privacy intruders. And let me tell you, this is a service that you need. If you're like me, I take my iPad everywhere. Like I'm in a coffee shop, I'm at Starbucks, I'm at the restaurant, and I'm just like plugging into random Wi-Fis. And I don't know if I can trust these systems. I don't know who is listening in or, or peeking into my web searches. And so that's why I use NordVPN because I can access content from over 59 countries simply by changing my virtual location with a single click. We, we live in the U.S., obviously, but with NordVPN, we can be anywhere in the world and access content from any of those regions. So when we're traveling, we're using these insecure restaurant or airport or hotel Wi-Fis, which are notorious for stealing identities. NordVPN is a great way to protect you and prevent hackers from stealing your information. You can use NordVPN for up to six devices, laptop, phone, smart TV, Reza's iPad, etc. Also, I love to use NordVPN to gain access to my favorite TV shows in other countries. Peep Show, Peaky Blinders, v- via the original UK office, Netflix. perhaps. You can also get uh, The Office on Canadian Netflix, which usually is geo-blocked. So, win, win, win. Go to nordvpn.com slash milkshake or use code milkshake to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month for free. It's also risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. NordVPN. I got to put a little jingle tag. At I the like end the of jingle this. tag. So what are you talking about for those listening going, huh, well, that's a beautiful idea. Well, uh, <laughs> for instance, uh, do you have a favorite quotation from the Quran? Do you have a favorite quotation from Christian scriptures and evangel? You got a favorite quote from the Torah? Uh, have yeah, you ever had a golden, teacher? The golden rule is a beautiful idea. Boomo, you get your first week done on beautiful idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's uh, it's it's universal. Yeah. It's you can't prove it wrong. Yeah. It's, it, it it applies to everyone, yeah. theist or atheist. Yeah, look at that. You even got reasons for your beautiful idea. Wow, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> All right, lightning round. When do you feel most connected with the universe? When I'm walking in a forest or when I'm praying or both. Describe your soul in 10 words or less. Mm, Some kind of magical, mystical thing that's somehow associated with my body and incorporates attributes of God like love and justice. That's exactly what I would imagine a professor would say. Just (laughs) like blow through the 10 words. But he did it like 17 words. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. He can't even follow the assignment. What do you think is the purpose of your life? To understand the universe and to serve it. What uh, is your biggest fear? Long, slow death of great pain. Yeah, tell me about it. What's one thing you know for sure? I'm going to go Socratic on this and say how much I don't know. Um, That's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. We're going to let him have it. Unbelievable. What do you want your final meal to be? Uh, Never. <laughs> and finally, what is your life's big question? What's it all about, really? Well, Dr. Rhett Diesner, uncle, professor, dear friend. Aw, shucks. Beautiful middle aged man. Beautiful, almost senior citizen. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I- I've learned so much and, uh, this is uh, this is going to be such a great episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to uh, interview the rest of Rain's family. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's basically what we're going to do this podcast on now. Cool. Just... We got to get my uh, my uncle Doug, who uh, buys and sells heavy machinery. Ooh, that's that's a very so, metaphysical. Mm, let's let's get him. Sounds on heavy. Thank you, Rhett. My pleasure. So I really love this exercise yeah. that Uncle Rhett talked about, uh, that journaling exercise in his Psychology of Beauty class. Let's remind everybody about it okay. one more time. Four things. What are they? Something beautiful in nature. Yep. Something beautiful that's artistic or something that's been designed. Yep. Right? Something that's morally beautiful, like, for instance, uh, a kind of human behavior. Yeah, the human behavior you witness. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And finally, a beautiful idea. And I love yeah. this final one. Um, notating every week 
a beautiful idea that could be a new idea or an age-old human idea. And, so, and uh, just a reminder that this, so Uncle Rhett basically is saying that if you do this once a week, then it's like it's like uh, exercising a muscle. You're cultivating yeah. be- your appreciation for beauty, which will cultivate your ability to love, mm-hmm. to empathize, to empathize, feel compassion for the other, to unite things. And uh, and help make the world a better place. So, all right. So let's do this. Let's, okay, let's right. do this. You and I, as an exercise, uh, you go first. Something beautiful in nature you want to share, Reza? Yeah. Uh, just this morning, I went outside and uh, I had to clip the uh, the bushes in our front yard. They've got these beautiful yellow flowers on them, and kind of you know this rain of beautiful yellow flowers came down on me. It was it was, it was beautiful. My wife and I took our honeymoon in Central Oregon, and we've really fallen in love with this area of Central Oregon near Bend, but up closer more in the mountains, Three Sisters Mountains, etc. When I go up there and I see the vista of the Three Sisters Mountains from the little town of Sisters, Oregon, I get a feeling in my chest that it 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 stops me in my tracks. I've seen a lot of beauty in this world, and I've appreciated a lot of it. Um, but for some reason, when I see those mountains and they're just spiky and covered in snow and um, the way the light is up there, it, it, it really like thumps my heart. Mm. And there's so many times, I, I would say every time we take a trip up there, at some point in time, I just pull over the car to the side of the road and I just have to just stop and take it in. And I try and photograph it, but a photograph never captures the feeling of that magnificence. I I love the Three Sisters. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Let's see, something beautiful that's artistic or designed. Well, I just returned from a week with my wife uh, in Bali. And we, there are, you know, there are a lot of temples. What What I love about Bali is that there are just temples every five feet. Wow. But they're like actually still functional temples. They're not... They're not meant for tourists. Like, there are actually signs that say, please don't enter. But there's one temple, especially. It's called the Tirta Ganga Water Temple. And it's this amazing former, like, royal palace. And and there's water everywhere. And you kind of, there are these um, stones that come up out of the water. So you can walk on them. And it looks like you're walking on the water. It was Mm. just, just absolutely gorgeous. That that really hit me this last week. Mm. Mm. What about you? Something beautiful, artistic, or designed? Yeah, I had a... I had a spiritual experience of beauty when I saw in real life a very famous painting called Luncheon of the Boating Party by Renoir. I was walking through uh, the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, D.C. I was doing an acting job there, and I just turned my head down um, a hallway, and this Luncheon of the Boating Party was sitting there and it stopped me in my tracks. My jaw dropped. I, I couldn't believe that it's pigment on canvas, right? But light seemed to be emanating from it. It's, it was like one of those paintings you felt like you could walk into. And it had such um, a languor and life and conviviality and connection between the people and... I just wanted to be in that painting. And uh, it was really a a very powerful experience. And it actually got me thinking a lot um, in my kind of spiritual and artistic life about that combination of spirituality and artistry. Mm-hmm. And how how is it that a, some dude in a beret with a palette of paints was able to blob this paint down on an empty canvas and make something that was so powerful and alluring and and mesmerizing that seemed like it was glowing. And I thought there's a miracle in that act. There's literally, talking about Jesus walking on water miracles, that is where the miracles lie. Uh, let's see, I think the third question was something that's morally beautiful. Yeah, right? do you have anything like that? What do you got? Again, oh, you know, I was gone for a week, came home, and my four-year-old has not, left my side since I've been Hmm. home. He just, I mean, just physically connected to me for the last four or five days. We sleep together. We, he, he's on my lap when we eat and there's, and he just keep every once in a while just looks up at me and and says, I love you, Bubba. It's just like this, like seeing that kind of 
you know, there's a purity, adulterated, pure love, yeah. right? That he yeah. that he shows me. It's um, yeah, it's just it's just the greatest thing in the world. Well, going for this last week, I went uh, yesterday to the climate strike, Fridays for Future, oh, yeah. with Greta Thunberg downtown at at City Hall, and um, I don't go to a lot of marches and rallies and whatnot, but there was something really morally beautiful about people that cared so much about the planet that they sacrificed their entire day Hmm. to be a part of it. And it was very diverse, which was really beautiful to see. People of all different genders, sexualities, races, uh, classes, um, students that were inner city barrio kids and Native Americans. And it had beautiful diversity. And uh, I thought that was a really beautiful human behavior to witness that. And finally, the last one, uh, and really the most striking of all of these, a beautiful idea. Has there been a a beautiful idea that you've been, uh, that you've come up against? Okay, so last night I took a bath, a really long, hot bath, and uh, I, I tend to like get in a bath and then just like lose all time, and then eventually I start to get weak and dizzy and so i was coming out of the bath and i lay down on the ground uh to just sort of get cool a little bit and i noticed that i was kind of splayed on the ground and my hands and my legs happened to just kind of point towards the bedrooms of all of my children including the bedroom that will become uh, the room for my next child. <laughs> because, <laughs> your, because your forthcoming child. We just keep popping them out. Yep. And uh, longtime listeners know I have 17 children. Yep. Um, and uh, I'm just kidding. I have soon to be four children. And, um, and there's some stress involved in that. <laughs> you know, yep, financial sure. stress yep. and a lot of anxiety uh, about. Hey, like, you're rolling all in these podcast kids. money. Come <laughs> yeah, on. That's true. I forgot about that. And, um, and then I had this moment, and I don't think I've actually, weird, weirdly enough, have have had this moment, or at least been aware of it, uh, where suddenly I felt so proud of myself. Mm. So this beautiful <laughs> idea is the creation of a family and the yeah. bonds of family. Yeah, and, and just like and wow, you, you look physicalized at this. it. I did. Like, look at this. I, I like. I did this all by myself. My wife had nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wrought yeah. this thing. That look is... at me with my gigantic family. It was, it was just, it just made me feel really, it was just beautiful. It made me that feel is, really good. That is a beautiful idea. That really is. And then, and then, uh, and then, uh, my wife from bed yelled at me, what are you doing out there? You're keeping me awake. And I was like, okay, beautiful ideas. <laughs> broke. Time to get to bed. <laughs> well, I can't top that one. That was really, uh, beautiful and special. But I think the, again, with the climate march, I was thinking about the diversity there and, and I'm talking real diversity. I mean, obviously, it wasn't like there weren't Republicans there. Sorry. But um, uh, but there were suburban housewives, you know, and there were rich people in their Teslas there. And there were poor college students eating ramen. Um, and I really love this idea of unity in diversity. And this is a key idea in the Baha'i mm-hmm. faith. And one of the things that really attracts me to the Baha'i faith is that humanity is a... A variegated flower garden, and it's in diversity that we find strength, not in kind of unanimity. Is that the right word? Yeah. So I really love the strength of that idea, and moving forward, humanity to survive on this planet is going to need to embrace its diversity. And for you, Reza, that yes, that does mean conservatives that we have to Wait, find. It, u- but it doesn't mean unattractive people. <laughs> no, they should be. <laughs> They should be put on another planet. Yes, yes. Um, so that this, was that this was, was fun. This hey, was okay, really fun. So listen up, listeners. It's your turn. Okay, we want you guys to do the same thing. Whether you do it every week, like Uncle Rhett says to do, or whether you do it once, do it. Write it down. Four questions: something beautiful in nature, something beautiful that's artistic or design, something that's morally beautiful, like human behavior, and a beautiful idea. Treat beauty like a muscle that you can exercise and you'll get better at it. Hey, milkshakers. It's me and Reza here. As you know, we love to bring fan guests on the show with their life's big questions. 
you can hit us up on the social media and you can also leave a positive, hopefully, review on Apple Podcasts with your life's big question and we will track you down and bring you on the show. And that is how we found Natalie Gregory, the hipster who has joined <laughs> us. And uh, I was saying she is the the hippest uh, looking fan guest we've ever had. We're, mm. we're very grateful for that. And I guess even wow. hipsters have life's big questions too. Is that, am I being really mean and unfair? I, I mean, I guess these glasses pretty much, they do scream hipster for people who they can't see. But they're chunky, like the old school Buddy Holly glasses, but you know, it's, it's fine. It's good. All um, right. I'm, I'm glad you're not insulted. I, I, am, I mean that in, in a good way. You've got a, you've got a excellent look. You, you look got like a nice you look about like a killer lady. cyborg in a, in a movie. <laughs> they got a nice yeah, face. I mean, I, you know, it's like nerd, nerd chic, you know, nerd chic, hipster. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take it. I'll All take right. it. So anyway, Natalie, welcome to, to Metaphysical here. Milkshake. What is your life's big question? Thank you. Really happy to be here. You know, I am so, I'm so excited to talk to you guys and ask my question. So I think that a lot of life's big problems and, uh, across history, um, well, a lot of problems I think stem from toxic masculinity, but I'm not going to get into that today because I think the actual overarching problem is the ego. And so my question is, how do we conquer the ego? How do we live free of mm. fear and how do we live so that we are not ruled by the ego when we make these horrible decisions based on basically out of fear? Yeah, um, I I love the question and I love how you linked it to toxic masculinity because ultimately it really is at the root of that, you know, um, preserving our sense of self and um, our fear of losing what we feel like we have and that we have under control is at the core of, uh, of toxic masculinity. I, I know that term can be questionable because it just turns so many people off, but um uh, I'm not sure what other term to use right now, so we're going to stick with that. But this is like one of the central spiritual questions of all time, right? So oh, yeah. this is what the Buddha was addressing, you know, at 1000 BC of, you know, this whole idea of the self. Um, you know, in my, in my tradition as a Baha'i, I may have shared this story on here before, but I just love it. So I'm going to tell it again. Um, a great spiritual leader in my faith tradition, whose name was Abdul Baha. Um, he came to the United States about a hundred years ago and a journalist asked him, Hey, do Baha'is believe in Satan? And Abdul Baha said, yes, uh, to the Baha'is Satan is the insistent self. So that's a very interesting concept that Satan's not some dark Lord who lives in a hell somewhere and has got a trident and is really mean and whispering in people's ears. But that who is whispering in our ears is the insistent self, you know, mm -hmm. and this is this is a constant in the human struggle. This is kind of like if you're going to boil it all down to a core issue, uh, it, it, it reflects in politics, it reflects in the environment and it reflects in men's and women's issues. And uh, and the Buddha, you know, dealt with it that. Suffering is attachment, and attachment comes from the ego wanting to control, to clutch, and to own, and to grasp, and to get more things in transitory things. So um, the root of all suffering really hinges from the ego. So if we tackle the ego collectively, uh, all seven billion of us, we might actually be a happier species and more harmonious species on this planet. Yeah. Of course, the Buddha's point was there is no ego, there is no self, because everything is illusion. In my tradition, Sufism, we we kind of we accept that, yeah, that there is no self, that that's the the foundation of like true spiritual fulfillment, like true understanding of reality, you know, the world, the universe begins where the Buddha began, which is there is no self. But as opposed to the sort of Buddhist idea that there is no self because all things are void, everything is an illusion, you know, nothing is real. 
the Sufi idea is, no, there is no self because the self is a drop of water in an ocean, right? Like, how do you differentiate that drop from the rest of the water, from the rest of the water in the ocean? You can't. It is utterly one with the ocean. It doesn't exist as a singular drop any longer. Um, and so it's that kind of idea of like the notion that who you think you are, who what, what your ego is, is merely just a part of a massive whole. But yeah, I mean, Rain's right. Like fundamentally, you know, that is the same notion that the problem starts with the self. The problem starts with the ego. Uh, and that's a that's a an issue that you can hear, you know, in the East, the West, it, it, you know, in ancient religions, contemporary religions, it all just kind of starts with the ego. So what's the answer to detach from it? Is it just meditation? Do I have to just do meditation? <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's kind of funny. That's, great... the, that's kind of the new age kind of catch-all. Like, yeah, any issue you have, um, I have an eating disorder, I'm depressed, Meditate. I'm dealing with ego, like, Meditation. Um, I'm not going to go to meditation off right off the bat. What do you think, Natalie? What do you, what are your what are your well, thoughts? You've got some think, thoughts on this. I I I I say that because I make fun of myself because I've tried to cultivate a meditation practice and I I haven't done a very good job. But I do think there is something to the idea of separating from your thoughts because at the end of the day, I think ego is sort of your thoughts, or that's how it manifests. And so detaching from thoughts, I do think, is key to cultivating that sort of, you know, like I was saying earlier, not making any decisions based on that. So, well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I think meditation can be very helpful um, in a number of different ways and on a number of different levels. But I think even just having this conversation and recognizing that there is an ego and that we are not our ego, we are not our thoughts, and we are also not our ego, Meditation can certainly help with that idea, but that we have consciousness, and part of that consciousness, I would say someone who occupies the chairman of the board seat in the conference room of our consciousness is Mr. or Mrs. Ego. And is, if we're able to recognize that as like a, a significant part of who we are, but not all of who we are, then we get to see when it flares up. So then the ego flares up like, ah, I can't believe they spoke to me that way. I'm never going to call them again. Oh, that jerk. And, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, that's my ego talking. It's not actually me. That's not actually my consciousness. That's the ego chairman of the board pontificating and blowing hard and smoking his cigar. And I get to witness that. And in the act of witnessing, I get to detach lovingly from Mr. or Mrs. Ego and this is then an ongoing process. Um, and But we have to have, we have to develop that sensitivity. We have to develop that awareness first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said, partner. Thanks. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And thank you for your thought-provoking question. Uh, if- and Natalie, um, are you in an insane asylum? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I am in a WeWork phone booth. Oh, wow. Okay. All right, that makes sense. So I wasn't going to say anything. Right, so, so, sort of, sort of like an <laughs> a different type. <laughs> Folks, if you have a life's big question, uh, you know what to do. Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Ask us your big question. And if we like it, we'll bring you on like Natalie. Uh, and in the meantime, rid yourself of the ego. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was a blast. Thank you again to our guest, Uncle Rhett Diesner. Tomorrow on Metaphysical Milkshake, we will hear from Rain's cousins and then yep. eventually... My Uncle Doug <laughs> and his heavy machinery. <laughs> any nephews, Operation. any nephews, sure, I, I, nieces. We'll, let's bring them all in. Basically, we got a lot of these to do. Yeah, I mean, okay. We might we'll just go through your entire family. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, We'll catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. 
It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Metaphysical Milkshake is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of The Mashup Americans. Associate producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Lindsay Cradwell, Sarah Pellegrini, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Shelby Sandlin. Original music by Jeff Tang and Scott Tang. I, I just want to say that, you know, I think it's a real honor to hang out with two really beautiful minds and hearts named uh, Rain and Reza. I, I like how you... I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to between acrylics and the grocery store. Only referred to our internal beauty, which is... <laughs> I mean, I just want you to know I noticed. I, I appreciate that because I've been working really, really hard on trying to find you beautiful. <laughs> well, it is an effort. It's a struggle. Yes. That's why we're podcasters <laughs> and we're not on the air. We've got faces for podcasts. <laughs>